Hi, welcome to Sweetman Podcast. I'm your host, I'm Simon Sweetman, and this is episode 129. Uh, I had a chat with Suzanne Vega. She is a singer-songwriter that I have been listening to since I was 10 years old. Uh, I'm a huge fan of her work. I've, uh, you know, I read her book of lyrics and poems and writings, uh, various interviews and bits and pieces. I've owned all of her albums over the years, and I had never had the chance to see her play until a couple of weeks ago. I flew over to Sydney to see her play with the band to do the anniversary shows of uh, 25th anniversary of 99.9 Fahrenheit degrees and 30th anniversary of Solitude Standing. And then I came back to Wellington and saw her play a duo show with her, her long-serving bassist. He's actually on the Solitude Standing album and played with her ever since then. Uh, I, I saw that show and um, you know, I had put in a couple of requests to maybe get an interview. Uh, I thought that I would like to do that, but I also thought, oh, well, I'm probably going to get the old 10-minute phoner and plug the tour, and I would still like to do that and help, but uh, it would be amazing if I got the chance to actually talk to her and have a, a bit more of an in-depth chat. So you try these things, you you ask and you and you hope. Well, um, a big thanks to the promoter, Kurt Shanks, who uh, who organised this and uh, and contacted me and said, look, she's actually got some time for you. She's going to give you half an hour. And can you do anything with that? And it's like, yeah, of course, we can have a good chat, hopefully. So she agreed to talk to me after she'd done the New Zealand shows. She was, uh, in fact, after this conversation happens, she pretty much leaves the hotel goes to the airport, gets on a flight to Japan to go and play two shows as soon as she gets to Japan and then on to, I think they're in the UK now, but still touring. Uh, so yeah, this is me sitting down talking with Suzanne Vega. Now I'm, as I've said, I'm a huge fan, so it was fun to talk to her about about her life and her professional, uh, you know, her career, about, we go through most of the albums, we talk about her songwriting, we talk about um, the evolution of her show. Um, but, you know, I feel like this is more than just um, a promo interview. Well, for a start, we're not really plugging a new album or a tour as such. She does, uh, give, if you're listening from overseas, she does, you know, give some clues as to what's happening next. There are more shows this year and, and so forth, and, and there's, you know, works that she's planning to do. So there is some indication of what's going to come next. But uh, we just did what I try to do on this podcast, which is have a good chat, talk, talk about... Uh, artistic people, creative people doing what they do. Um, so it was a huge honour for me uh, and uh, and I, I was very, very grateful to, to meet her and to have this conversation and I I had the fanboy moment where I got her to sign my book and sign a couple of my records and, uh, and she was just nice to talk to. So I am sure she's really nice to listen to too in the context of the podcast. Uh, this is me talking with one of my heroes, Suzanne Vega. I liked your review, you know, I thought it was very, um, that you have a perspective, you yeah. know, on music, yeah. you didn't just go there, you know, like, you're a real music. Oh, uh, thanks, I mean, I'm a fan, and yeah. it comes across, but yeah, exactly, like, I didn't want to just be a... Yeah, you're more than just a fan, you're, you're, you're stud- you've studied it, you know, Yeah, yeah. Um, you've got a sense of perspective that not all fans do. Yeah, it's not, hopefully, well, thank you, yeah. thank, thanks, <laughs> yes. thanks for that, because, I mean, I was thinking, like, I didn't really want to start by telling you this, but you know, I, I think I was 10 years old when I first saw a videotape of like a, is it the live, I think it's the same as that live in London oh. record that exists. Right, right. I used to have the VHS tape of that, oh. and that was my sort of, that was my thing I watched over and over again at, at 10 years old, yeah. and uh, the last time you played in New Zealand, 
I wanted to go, but I was at school, and it was a, you know, I lived in a small town in the middle of the country, and it was a, yeah. a school night, and I didn't have a driver's license or money, right, right. <laughs> but I wanted to go. So, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so I, ha- I do have that gushing fan aspect, but, you know, it was nice to go and see a show and think about it as a person who likes music and likes shows, and, yeah, yeah and it was, and I mean, the, you've been doing the anniversary shows for, a while. A year, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As you said last night, like the, the anniversary's been and gone. Do you and someone someone called out for days of open hand or something off that and yeah. you sort of made a joke about the anniversary show for that, but has it made you think that you might do other albums? Like yeah. Nine Objects of Desire I could imagine would be yeah. a great one to play. Yeah, I've thought about doing that. I mean I think no matter what I did, I probably would have to do either the first album or the second album mm. to get people to, to come. Mm, mm. Um, if I'm going to do two, mm-hmm. if I'm going to do do two albums, mm, mm. I could do the first album and Songs in Red and Grey. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the second album. And in fact, that'd go together really nicely, I think. Yeah, and yeah. since there's themes that repeat throughout all of the mm. albums, they kind mm. of fit together in an interesting way. It's mm. almost like the first act and the second act of yeah, the play. Yeah, yeah. Certain things develop and then they conclude with yeah. the album because my way of writing is very circular yeah 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 and and you bring up that thing of um, theatre that's something that's kind of <laughs> you can bring that up yeah okay. that's um, you bring up that element of theatre which I think is, is all through your your work and your approach to your work you know I mean you've actually done the the Carson McCullers yeah. theatre thing but you obviously were interested in theatre and involved in theatre as some sort of participant early on I Some minored sort of, in theater in yeah, college, yeah. and I took a ton of courses, all, all mm. ranging from tech. I studied set design. I mean, I took one course in set mm. design, mm. Um, and uh, I fell in love with it. Yeah, um, I was not very confident of my abilities as an actress. Um, I mean, I took a few courses. Mm. Um, so, but I, I am in love with the world of theater. But Anything e- that happens on a stage yeah, is something yeah. that I find very alluring. But even in your writing, you know, like even in your writing, I think, you know, I, I think of your songs as I do a lot of other people that they're not just poetry, but kind of short stories. But actually, they're, they're kind of some of them are like little plays. You know, the Queen yeah. and the Soldier. Luke, Luca has a theatrical element to it. You, yes. set, you set up this world where we're like. We're, we're observers of the song as it's happening, but then you're actually speaking to us, pulling us in, so we're, yeah. we're complicit. Exactly, yeah, and in, in effect, in, in a way, you're complicit, exactly mm. right. You're, mm. you're sort of incriminated in the... Because mm. you know, you know, you've heard mm. it. Mm. You've heard the sounds. So mm. I, I um, set that up all very carefully back when I was writing the song. Mm. It took me months to, to figure out the way in and the angle in. Mm. Um, and it happened pretty quickly. I don't in my journals. I don't even have a rough draft right, of right. that song. Yeah. There's no sort of stab at it, like yeah. trying out different names or you know. It's just a complete song right there on the Sunday that mm, I wrote it. Mm. One, two, three verses. The end. Because yeah, I mean, when, as I listen to your songs, they they all seem to feel like they arrive fully formed. Like they might, t- you know, they might take yeah. a long time. Yeah. One might take longer than the other. There's no formula to how you sit down and approach them. But yeah, they don't. I can't imagine them in their embryonic stages. You know, they. Just, That's good. Because <laughs> yeah. you wouldn't want to. But do you know what I mean? Like I they, do. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, that's good. That means that I sort of achieved some sort of like uh, completeness, of, yeah. uh, you know, because yeah. some of the early drafts of the Queen and the Soldier, I can tell you, were really bad. Right. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, so, 
let's let's go back. Where does it? You know, I'm, I'm trying to avoid too many of the things that you always get asked. But where does it all kind of start for you in terms of, I guess, a connection to music? Like, when do you become a music listener? When do you, when are you aware of music in your household, and who introduces you to it? Um, I think I was always aware of music. Mm. I was drawn to it from the time I can remember, which is two, three years old. Uh, my parents played music um, in the house. They played jazz records. They had this record of um, gypsies singing flamenco music, mm. which I just found absolutely enthralling. Uh, and I think I was about three. Mm. And I remember the cover very clearly and staring at the cover and trying to figure out what was going on with this, this man and this woman dancing. Mm. Um, so any kind of music that was around was something that I was attracted to. Uh, my stepfather's grandmother sang little songs to me, little nursery rhymes, mm. and little games, mm. uh, which really appealed to me. Mm. And so, uh, I mean, ever since I can remember. And you start um, having a go at writing songs quite early. Yeah. Um, were you doing, did that graduate from other kinds of writing? You know, were they poems first? Were you a, a person that wrote down little thoughts and stories? I always and wrote. Uh, I wrote, I started to try to write poetry when I was six or seven. Yeah. Little things a bit like the songs that I knew. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's like little, little poems from six, seven, eight, nine years old. Mm. Um, then when I was 11, I picked up the guitar. Mm. We had a guitar in the house, my stepfather played um, after dinner, and I suddenly decided, oh, I'll, I'll see if I can do this. And I was in Puerto Rico when this happened. And the funny thing is, I was holding the guitar in my hands, and suddenly everyone turned around and looked at me. Mm. And my aunt said, you look so, you look, there was like a moment uh, and everyone looked at me and they said something like, you look so natural holding that guitar. You look as though you've, you've played it your whole life. And I, I was a bit self-conscious. Um, and then they taught me a couple of chords. Um, but it was sort of like an awakening when I was 11. But it took three years to write the first song. And how did the voice come out and how did the voice come out for you? Like, you know, Everyone's got a voice, whether it's good or not is another thing, and then whether how they understand it is another thing on top of that. I mean, yeah. I, I cannot sing but in my, at all, and, yeah. and but in my very occasional, you know, completely not self-conscious moments, and like in the car by myself, I'll sing along to things. I don't, I don't for a minute think I'm doing a good job, yeah. but I maybe for a split second I go, oh, I'm not as bad as I used to be, and I'm, yeah. I'm probably worse, yeah. you know, if anything. So when, so when did you... Yeah, when were you comfortable with your voice? Did it come out? Did someone tell you straight away, hey, you've, you've got something there? And um, it, That happened one day in the kitchen of my home when I was about 14. Um, I always sang to my brothers and sisters. Mm. <clears throat> I'm the oldest of four. And my mother had four children before she was 24 years old. So she, it was a very full household yeah, with right. the kids mm. running around. So very often she would say, take these kids and do something with them. And that's what I would do. I would sing mostly Christmas carols mm. and whatever I could think of, Beatles songs. Mm. Um, so that's the kind of voice I had and still have. It's mm. the kind of big sisterly mm. kind of voice. Mm. You know? mm. uh, so I remember singing a song in the kitchen that I had just written, probably the first or second song. And my father, my stepfather said, Susie has a voice. 
Mm. And uh, that made me very proud. Um, and because I was very quiet, I was like the quietest kid. Yeah. Um, was it the song you'd written about your brother? Yeah, it was the song I'd written about which my you, brother. Which you eventually record. Yes, I did, yeah. When you did the project where you re-record everything. Yeah. So you, it's like the longest gestation period between writing a song and recording one for you. Yes, <laughs> by, exactly. By some way. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, exactly. So, um, yeah, so when my father said that, that was very meaningful to me because he... Um, was very critical. Mm. Um, so the fact that he said that I had a voice was, was you know, noteworthy. Mm. Um, and then I started to go out. After two years of writing in the house, I decided to try and go out and start singing mm -hmm. um, in uh, church basements, you know, stuff mm. like that. Mm. You, I mean, it's, it, I guess it's sort of well documented that you were part of a what people call a folk revival, a folk renaissance, when, and I think largely they just mean acoustic-based music rather than yeah. pure folk. Sure. Um, so, but uh, what I want to know is, uh, what, I've, what I've always wondered, uh, I guess, about you, and it's one of the things I think I find most interesting about your music, is, is who, who were or are your contemporaries? You seem to sit outside, like I feel like you're a link between the Leonard Cohen and Joni Mitchell and Paul Simon and all those great songwriters that come from some version of a folk tradition. Then, then I can think of everything that was discovered after you. Yeah. Tracy Chapman, uh, you know, Edie Brickell. Yeah. Some are sound-alikes, some aren't. They're doing their own thing. But who were, were there people that you were consciously aware of that you would consider contemporaries? Because I was thinking Solitude Standing feels like such a great statement for you. Right. Now, you know, it's gone yeah. on to be like a, a defining, it's, it sort of sums up a big part about who you are and how you operate. You're there by yourself, by myself, yeah. in a way. Yeah. In the stoic way, I mean. You know. <laughs> um, well, the one person I remember hearing and thinking uh, was Ricky Lee Jones. Yeah. Right. Uh, when I heard her first album mm. and Chucky's in Love and all mm, that, mm. Uh, when I heard the Pirates album, I remember thinking, I mean, she's still a bit ahead of me. A little bit, but, yeah, yeah, but you, were, you were a songwriter by that point. Yeah, I was a songwriter yeah, by yeah, that point. And yeah. she had a kind of mixture of, uh, she had some folky elements mm. and some kind of streetwise elements, mm. Mm. Uh, which I felt I had, because mm. I grew up in the streets of New York. So I sort of felt for a minute that we were kind of doing something a little bit similar. Mm. But then by the time I went on to do Solitude Standing, we were quite different. Mm. Um, she was sort of following well, her own path, you yeah. know, and yeah. I was following mine. And yeah. So I, I wouldn't cite her as, as an influence, but for a moment in time I thought, oh, yeah, she's yeah. really interesting and I yeah. feel some kinship. Yeah, her. and, a, and a, something can come of this, like she's managed this, so yeah. I'm on a path that... Yeah, although I never... Um, that part of things was always up in the air. I never <laughs> really... Uh, I knew what I wanted to be, mm. but I wasn't sure about the marketing side okay. of it. And, and I didn't really concern, it didn't really concern me that mm, much. Mm. I kind of left all of that to my manager, Ron Fierstein, who it turns out is a brilliant guy mm. and actually had a vision for me that was bigger than the one I had for myself. Mm, mm. Um, he's the one who said, um, he said, I think I can get you a major label deal. Mm, mm. And I said, okay. I mean, I sort of thought I'd go to Flying Fish, which was a kind of folky yep. rounder records yep. and, yep. you know, uh, sell 100,000 copies. And he said, I think you, I think you have more potential than that. Mm. And I, I sort of laughed and I was like, okay, you know, as long as I don't have to change myself, as yeah, long yeah. as I don't have to like be some kind of pop 
thing yeah, that yeah, was yeah. popular at the moment. Yeah, you know, yeah. I'm not I'm not going to change myself. Yeah. But he uh, he kind of created this big stage for me mm. that I then just walked out onto. Yeah, and he's the one who saw the potential in Luca. Right. Because because yeah, when your first record comes out and, and the second one comes very closely after it, and I'm we'll get into this, but I imagine a lot of those songs are written around the same time, shaped around the same time, or at least some of them. Some of them for Solitude Sound. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, I'm thinking like, just immediately before your record comes out, it's all about Cindy Lauper, Whitney Houston, Madonna, these big pop acts, yeah. where it's actually, you know, they've got some great songs, but it's really not interesting whether they wrote them or not, and it's not about the quality of the song, it's about the quality of the video, right. the, the image. The image, yeah. it's all about the image. And so you, yeah. I think for a lot of people, you you know, you know, have this pop success, with, with particularly with Luca, um, you, but it's about, it's always about the song, you yep. know, anything else, you know, it's about your voice and the other players on the record and all of that, but it's about the song. Yeah, the writing, the lyrics, yeah. the metaphor, yeah. Yeah. and all of that, and... Um, I mean, that's who I was following the people I loved. Mm, you know, I was mm. following, uh, uh, you know, Leonard Cohen, Bob Dylan, and, mm. and those guys. Mm, I mean, mm. uh, even to the point of sort of trying to dress sort of like, you know, the Bob Dylan uh, period uh, where he was in his sa 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 Savile Row yes, period where he's yeah. a really sharp dresser yeah. and it's got the pointy boots and all yeah, that. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, so uh, that's what I was aiming for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, uh, fill in the, I mean, the famous story is that your record or the demo for your first record gets rejected twice and, and by AM Records yeah and by, by everyone you, else too, yeah yeah putting Geffen Records yeah and blah, every major label but said the no. record company that ends up signing you and releasing you rejects it twice yeah twice and you're a what do you do for a job you're a secretary I was a Rece receptionist receptionist yeah um, at that moment in time yeah I answered phones and yeah. I, I was a very good receptionist and yeah. people liked my voice you know <laughs> I, I uh, also ran the office, made coffee, um, you know, did all mm. that stuff that you mm. do. I, it was kind of like a sec secretary. Yeah, yeah. Um, so... And so what, you go home from that and go out and play, write yeah. songs? Yeah, um, it was exhausting. See, yeah, see yeah. other people, play. Yeah, I was hanging out at Folk City, which mm. was a very thriving, interesting scene then. A, a little bit in the wake of, of Bob Dylan, because Bob mm. Dylan started at Folk City and he had kicked off his Rolling Thunder uh, review tour mm. from mm. Folk City in the 70s. Mm -hmm. So I got I got down there in the early 80s. So everyone was still sort of feeling that that the wake of Bob Dylan's presence yeah. there. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but it was a fascinating place to be. You could see people on their way up, you could see people sort of on their way down. Mm. You know, mm. you could see members of the band, mm. Rick Danko, Mm. Um, would come and sing, uh, Mose Allison, some really great wow. performers. Yeah, yeah. And you could stay all night. Yeah. You could just hang out at the bar, um, buy drinks, mm. buy drinks for yourself, buy drinks for other people, other people buy drinks for you. You mm. just hang out all night long and drink, mm. drink, drink, and watch the show. Mm. And it was a great place to learn. Yeah. And, and and obviously Luca and Tom's Diner are the big hits on the second album, but the first album gets released, it's got songs you still play to this day, songs lots yeah. of people love. It's it's obviously a popular record, otherwise there wouldn't be a second record. Um, it sold a million copies. Exactly. So yeah. so how do you go from, you know, doing your day job to suddenly you don't need shocking. a day job? Yeah. <laughs> shocking. Yeah. I actually still remember the day my manager said, you have to quit your day job. 
And I said, you're kidding me. I said, this is a good, this is a good salary for me. How am I supposed to, to earn my living? And he said, I'll lend you $1,000, which at that point was like a million dollars. I had never seen $1,000 in one place. So I thought, he's crazy. How am I going to be able to pay this back? Um, and he lent me the $1,000, and within three or four months, we had the record deal with advances and all that. I thought, oh, this is interesting. Um, and then after that, Things really happened very quickly. I mean, that first five years of touring for me, yeah. I was not just in charge of the band, and not just in charge of the producers that I was working with to make the albums, yeah. but when we went on tour, there was a whole busload of crew members that I never even realized that I was their boss. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember standing there talking to Anton Sanko and saying, you know those guys come to every single show and they pack up and it's just so great that they come to every show and he turned to me and he goes, you hire them. They are your crew. They work for you. But yeah, they were on a different bus mm. and I never really saw them. Mm. You know, I saw them setting up and I saw them breaking down, but no one had introduced me to them. No one had said, these men work for you. Mm. And so I had to learn to be a boss of a bunch of guys. Uh, I had to learn when to buy them drinks, you know, yeah. when to yeah. praise them and, you know. When to uh, cut them off from having drinks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that I was usually gone by that point yeah. uh, in the evening, but, um, you know, I had to learn how to, how to be the boss mm. for a whole bunch of men. What, what sort of and women, some, sometimes women. What sort of influence in your life in terms of things like that was your mother? Because am I right? I mean, you said she had kids, several kids at a young age. She ran a household, but she was a worker, wasn't she? She, she actually a, did not run the household. Right, it was okay. really my stepfather okay. that ran so the household. So she yeah. she went out. She had a professional job. She was a she was a computer systems yeah, analyst. Yeah. She also got a, a in an era when that. Yeah, it was would, would be kind of strange to say to people, what do you do as yeah. a woman? I do this, whereas now, you know. Yeah, now it's yeah. more likely. But yeah. a, wo a woman in technology back yeah. in the 70s was extremely unusual. Mm. Mm. And I remember coming home, you know, coming walking into the kitchen and looking for a snack or something, and she was there with a computer as high as my waist. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. it was as yeah. high as a small refrigerator. Yeah. Yeah. And she was hooked up to the library of, mm. of Hunter College through the modem. Mm. Mm. And I was kind of unimpressed, you know, I was looking for food, but, uh, but she, you know, showed me what she was doing. Yeah, yeah. Um, she's still very techno-minded. Techno she'll come over and if she uses my computer, she'll be like, There's a when was way the last time up. you repaired your application? <laughs> do your like, updates. Yeah, right. Why are all these, you know, why do you have all of these apps open? Mm. You know, she, but the rest of it sort of like, mm. she doesn't mm. care about my housekeeping, she just wants to know. Yeah. about my computer uh, management systems. So anyway, um, yeah, so my mother sort of, I was the go-between. You know, she'd call me from work and say, okay, here's what I want you to buy from the store, here's what I want you to right. make for dinner. You're um, a little bit surrogate mother to the other kid, to the younger kids, Yeah. with your stepfather helping as well, but yeah. and you're helping him. Yeah. Yes, and yeah. my stepfather was home a lot, he wrote a lot, he took his job as an artist very seriously, mm. he was passionate about it. Uh, worked very often all through the night, mm. um, and he also really cared about the household. Mm. You know, he uh, it was things were organized in a very beautiful way mm. because mm. of his eye mm. for art. Mm. And uh, and and I mean, Gypsy predates Solitude Standing. You tell that story. Yeah. Um, was there anything else? I mean, pre yeah, predates that, and even predates the first album. Is there anything else that you held off from that first record, and then? Oh, so many songs, yeah. Um, but then they do turn up on Solitude or, or even later? 
No, most of them uh, are still sort of encapsulated in these little tapes that I have, my, my teenage demo tapes, right. um, which I actually had digitized uh, fairly recently, so oh. I'll have to go through there at some point. Oh. Um, the way that worked was that Steve Adabo and I sat down and kind of sifted through every song I'd ever written oh. and rejected a lot of them. Oh. Uh, but a couple of them made it through, Gypsy, Calypso, um, and pretty much everything else is sort of on the on the junk heap of history. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, except for a couple of things like Black Widow Station, which I know there's some fans that are just mm. dying to hear that song, and mm. maybe that'll be resurrected one of these yeah, days. Yeah, yeah, and um, and and tell me um, when you when you hit the road touring. Yeah. Suddenly, there's you know the first two albums come out quite close together. Yeah. Then there's a quite a big break. Three years, yeah. Yeah. I was exhausted. Yeah. yeah. Because you're selling the records, doing the shows, and then you need to. I'm not um, only doing the shows. I'm doing all and, the promotion. That's right. And, and, and all these other jobs we talked about, looking after, realizing you're the figurehead of the band. You're the. Yeah. Yeah. And it was very difficult actually playing with a band back then. Mm. And Mikey and I met each other in like 85, mm. right after the first album was recorded. Mm. And um, back then, it was really a question of my singing over them. Um, so that was very strenuous and very exhausting. Mm. And they, I learned a lot by playing with them, but, mm. it, but it was exhausting. And sometimes I was doing two shows a night, and I was doing up to eight interviews a day, mm. and then doing the show at night. So uh, I was, by 1988, I had bronchitis, you know, I'd had, I was getting uh, sick more often than I wanted yeah. to be. So, so Days of Open Hand was a very introspective album because of that. Yeah, it sort of, it sort of sits as this hinge between the two records that come before it and the two that come after. Yeah. yeah, and it's, I feel like it's the, the slightly forgotten record in your catalogue or something, you know, it's the one that... It's forgotten for a reason, because I, uh, <laughs> I, I, I was under so much pressure, mm. and it probably would have been a better idea not to have produced my own record at that moment in time. Right. But Ron Fierstein was a firm believer in me and in my artistry, mm. and he felt that, uh, that I should have a crack at producing it myself with Anton Sanko. Mm. Um, in, in retrospect, I think I could have done better with like a different group of songs, uh, and we probably could have used a, a real producer, mm. um, which is why I then decided I would get a real producer for the next album, which turned out to be 99.9. Yeah, yeah. But does anything survive from it in terms of your shows? Do you go back and play st stuff from it very often? Because there, there's some great songs on it. You know? I play Tired of Sleeping. Yeah. I, I play... I actually, play Mike and I do this really cool version of the song that's called Room Off the Street. Mm -hmm. um, he does this really great bass thing, and I do this hand clapping thing. Mm. Um, we used to do that at festivals all the time, yeah. and that's a song that I would resurrect. Yeah. And pilgrimage. Yeah. We do yeah. Pilgrimage. Yeah. Okay. And so you mentioned ninety nine point nine, and that's when Mitchell Froome comes into into your life, and I guess eventually in more ways than just as a record producer. But yeah. how do you how do you connect with him? Is it suggested you work with him, or are you aware of? Has, or do you meet him outside of the idea? Here's the way that happened. It's actually a really cool story. Yeah. I mean, I was working on this demo tape and I was thinking of producing it myself. Mm. And I kept getting the flu and things kept happening. And I said, I, this is just not happening. I'm not enjoying this. Mm. But I had this little group of songs. So I decided I'm going to meet with three producers. I'm going to audition them. And I picked three producers I liked. 
Um, I picked Scott Litt, who had worked with REM. Mm. I picked Paul Fox, who had worked with XTC. And I picked Mitchell Froom, who had worked with Crowded House. Um, met with each of them, sent them my demo tape. Uh, Paul Fox was a lovely guy. He said, I love this demo tape. I wouldn't change a thing, except maybe add a horn section. Yeah. So I thought, well, that's not very helpful. I, I'm not going to yeah. hire you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so then I met with Scott Litt, and he was just on a different planet than I was on. He didn't like the songs. He said, why do we have to use these songs? And I mm. said, well, because I wrote them, and I think they're really good, mm. and these are the songs I want to produce. So then he said, well, you know, I'm really into salt and pepper right now, and that's really going to be the future of music, and I don't see why, why don't you do a hip-hop record? So I thought, you know, I, mm. I was not connecting on any level. Mm. Um, but Mitchell had great ideas. He said, I like these songs, but I think it needs to be more edgy. Um, the sound that you've got going on over here is very soft. And I said, I I'd love to be more edgy. How what do you suggest? Mm. And he had very specific, precise methods, you know, of mm. how he would record my vocal mm. uh, would be dry and, and close to the microphone, mm. um, which was great. I mean, I, when I heard exactly what he meant, I, I loved it. It was so different than the aesthetic that Steve Adabo worked with. Mm. Um, he had a bunch of suggestions like that, mm. and we just had this great chemistry. We just hit it off immediately. The first song we worked on was Blood Makes Noise. Right, which is... which is. I, I was just knocked out flat. Which is kind of a hip-hop song. You know, it's, it's almost getting... I mean, there's many other things. It's kind of an industrial song. It's a, yeah. You know, it's an indie rock song. But yeah. it, it has an element of... <laughs> Sorry. Alex. <laughs> <laughs> but it has an element of, and, and, and you do have this, like even on the first record, you have this kind of proto-rapping kind of way of delivering sometimes. Um, that was because was that, was where I came new, from. A New York listener, like as a. a it, it came yeah. from the games I played as a kid in the street. Right. Um, I grew up in East Harlem, and mm. I grew up in on the Upper West Side. Very mixed neighborhoods. Mm. Um, there were, was a kind of thing that you would do. Uh, there's a poem I wrote when I was 11 years old called "I'm the Baddest Girl in the World." So it's this sort of um, bragging mm. style of mm. writing. Um, so I grew up with it. Mm. You know, it became rap eventually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but it started out as games we would play in the yeah, street. Yeah. Of like, I'm cooler than you. You know, that poem starts off by saying, I'm as bad as Superfly, and I don't need Coke to get me high. This is <laughs> something I wrote at 11. So um, it was just a little step from that yeah. to like, yeah. you know. And then I saw Lou Reed when I was 19. Yeah. And his delivery was so dry. Yeah. And so. Yes, he's also got that proto-rapping thing and, yeah. and, what he, and a lot of what he did. And it was uh, my attempt to try to incorporate some of the sort of new wave, mm. not exactly punk because I don't scream, mm. but mm. I was interested by the whole new wave aesthetic and, mm. Mm. and all that. So I, I did a, a phone interview with Mitchell a few years ago. I was writing about a book about New Zealand music and about Crowded House. Mm -hmm. So I wanted his perspective on, on Crowded House. And I found a contact to message him and said, you know, this is my pitch, can I talk to you? And he said, yeah, here's my phone number, ring me. Yeah. So I rang him and uh, I had a really long chat to him about, because after I got what I wanted about Crowded House, I was like, 
you're Mitchell Froom. You've, you've pl played on and produced a lot of records I've listened to and love. Yeah. And I, I wanted to ask him about your, the records he did with you, and I said, you know, um, I, can we talk about your work with Suzanne? And he said, I, you know, I, I don't really want to comment on the personal life, but I, I, I'll happily talk about the records. Yeah. I said, great, that's what I want to know. And he said, yeah. he said, all I can say is I'm immensely proud of those records. They are really, I, I think they're pretty special to her, and they're really special to me. And yeah, it was great. It was it was great for me to get that from him yeah. because you know for a long time Nine Objects of Desire I think was my absolute favourite record of yours. Yeah, the one that I listened to the most. And then I kind I was aware of Ninety Nine at the time, but then I kind of in the way that sometimes happens I kind of went back to that and got more into that. Yeah. After you know after the one that had followed it. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Do you have this way of these records? They they logically follow one another. You know they in terms of I think. You can see the elements that you carry over from '99 into Nine Objects of Desire. Yet it's a different flavored record. But yeah, you can yeah, see, for sure. Yeah, you can see how they go together. So you take your time with these records, though. You, you're sort of slowing down a bit compared to the '80s. Is that yeah. is that this conscious? I'm not going to burn myself out again. No, no. What happened there was that I became a mother. Right. And uh, that changed everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so taking care of our daughter was the priority mm, okay. um, so uh, and juggling all kinds of things and then it didn't work out with myself and Mitchell so mm. there I found myself a single mother mm -hmm. for many years um, so I had to balance my touring life and raising Ruby um, and all of that so that's what slowed things down mm. quite a bit and is she still involved with music she released an EP right she did yeah um, She's not involved with music at the moment. She's a uh, she's going for a PhD in biology in the fall, right. and she's a super brilliant girl. Mm. I mean, she mm. graduated from college like summa cum laude, and mm. you know, with all these awards and honors. Mm. So that's her passion right now. But mm. I think that she, music will always be a part of her life. She plays yeah. so many different instruments. Yeah. She plays bass. She plays drums. She plays keyboard. She sings. Mm. Um, it's definitely a part of her, her life. Mm, mm. So then Songs in Red and Grey comes, and that is, uh, you know, obviously a reaction to, to the previous records, a, a, re a recalibration. It's yeah, I, uh, Rupert Hine uh, contacted me and he, he loved the previous albums, mm. and he was like, so are you ready to reinvent yourself again? And I was like, no, absolutely not, you know, I, I, all I want to do is kind of return to form. Yeah. Um, and um, I liked his productions, uh, but at that point I, I had less to do with it. It was sort of like I would show up at night, mm. um, listen to what he had done during the day, make my comments. It wasn't the teamwork that we had with me, uh, Mitchell and Chad. Mm. Mm. In those days I was there all day, every day, mm. um, putting my input, my two cents. Um, you know, I had my hands all, all over that. Mm. And, uh, and it was fascinating, I learned a lot. But with Rupert it was more of just that I kind of let let him do what he wanted yeah. and then put in my input so yeah. at the end of the day. Yeah, and I feel like that's the record of yours that, um, you know, you, you, you sort of said that Days of Open Hand is forgotten for a reason. I feel like, if anything, Songs of Red and Grey, my perspective on it is that's the one that's not forgotten but has slipped through the cracks more than it should have because it's an extraordinary collection of songs. I love the songs on the yeah. album and uh, I do a lot of them. I do Penitent. Yeah. Um, I, we probably would have done Penitent yesterday, but I felt that it was too too long. And Maggie May is sort of the more uh, yeah. slightly more upbeat one. Yeah. So um, yeah, I love the songs on that album. That's probably the most 
personal yeah. album. Yeah. There's very few characters and yeah. you know, sort of play acting. It's really more. It's a, diary stuff. Yeah. yeah. Sort of yeah. much more, much more yeah. personal. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 then you shortly after that you start re-recording your material. No, no. There's the Beauty and Crime album. Yes. Yeah. 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 And then, but then you get into the the series where you take your songs, strip them back, re-record them, and, yeah. you, and you theme them. Yeah. Now you did that to retake I'll ownership tell you of why. them. Yeah, it's because uh, right after days, of, uh, right after songs in red and gray. I love the Beauty and Crime album, by the way. Oh. I'm, not, I'm not just glossing over it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, it, what happened was that uh, um, right after songs in red and gray. Mm. I lost my record deal, right? Which you know I could sort of see coming. Mm -hmm. You know, I was in my 40s. Um, I had a huge record deal, and they they had all these uh, shakeups at the label. Yeah, yeah. So they, you know, we parted amicably. Yeah. Um, but then uh, I got another deal with Blue Note. Yeah. So I thought, okay, here's a relationship with Blue Note. I had expected that that was going to last a long time. I really liked the record company head, mm. and so we did Beauty and Crime. And instead, I found myself dropped after two years. So that was kind of a shock. Um, mm. So there I was, with no record label, and nothing of my own that I owned, except the songs. I don't own the recordings. Mm -hmm. The recordings belong to A&M. Yeah. And we kind of knew that when we signed the contract, that I would never have the rights to those recordings. So I thought to myself, there's no way I want to just write a bunch of new stuff who am I going to market it to? Mm, mm. You know, what am I going to do? It's mm. one thing to start a new record label, but I, I thought I'm going to re-record everything by theme. That way, if people buy the love songs, they'll hear the new stuff and the old stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's also kind of a mood. If yeah. you're in an edgy mood, you can you buy volume three. If you want to hear something sweeter, you go for volume one. And, and it's your songs really do well. Yeah, your songs do talk to one another. It's like you know, yeah. the you've got the, the connection between Gypsy and Liverpool would happen whenever you play them but like last night you play them back to back yeah and so yeah you're able to sort of do this through that through that series of records like pair things up there's yeah. a gap between them age-wise but the, right. the, yeah but they're thematically yeah. linked yeah. Yeah. yeah so um and at the same time i was growing my facebook page and i mm. thought well I'll, I'll try and get to a hundred thousand mm. and then we'll um you know i'll have somebody to to market to um that has not worked out i mean i uh, i love the facebook page mm. and it works for live gigs mm. but you cannot force anyone to buy anything <laughs> no not anymore <laughs> not even on facebook yeah um but it but over the long run that close-up series has been really good for me mm. it's now like it streams uh there's radio stations that play it not mm. not uh, not real radio stations but there's sort of streaming stations that play it and so I get a certain amount as the record label. It's such a good indicator too for people wondering if they uh, are on the fence about seeing you perform. Oh this person can play these songs and they sound great, you know, the voice yeah. is intact, yeah. not just intact, it's the same, you know, and, yeah. and, and so I feel like it's quite a good business card for that as well. Yeah, know? it's actually has been more successful than I had imagined. Right, yeah. Um, it's turned a profit. Um, Pretty consistently. Yeah. So uh, that was a huge relief. Yeah, yeah. Me. You release a book called The Passionate Eye. It mm. has some of these early poems, like the one you started yes. talking about. <laughs> it has song lyrics. It has an amazing interview with Lennon Cohen in it. Yeah. Um, have you thought about doing, you know, a second volume of that? You have more lyrics and, and some unreleased songs and. 
other things that you could compile into a I've second book? I've thought about um, writing more books. I think I'm going to really think about that next year. I'm going to mm. take some time off and um, sort of recalibrate again and start to think about new songs and new prose mm. and new poetry and just new everything. So, but I think I'm going to need to take some time off to do that. Mm. So what's the immediate plan? You go to Japan to play some shows, then you go... I go, I go to the UK yep. and we continue the anniversary tour with the full band yep. there. Um, I do some interesting sort of high profile stuff in the fall. Uh, I'm doing the proms uh-huh. in the fall with an orchestra, three songs. Wow. Uh, I'm doing this interesting version of Einstein on the Beach uh-huh. where I play the narrator. Uh, as so it's with a, a, a Belgian um, sort of group, yeah. a musical group, and um, that should be very interesting. Yeah. And um, they wanted a, uh, they didn't want an actress, they wanted a musician yeah. to, to do the yeah. part. So I happily said yes. So that's what I'm doing in the immediate future. So you've got this year booked up and then you're looking for a break to, yeah. to relax and to, yeah. to think about next moves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And then I guess the aim of that is a new record at some point when you're, yeah. when you're ready. Yeah, and to see what happens with the play. Uh, yeah. And uh, but yeah, I'd love to do a new album. And the landscape's always changing, so I'm always mm. trying to figure out what's the best way to do an album. Should I even do an album? Mm. You know, should I what just do the, a collection of songs that becomes an album? What was the response to the Carson McCullers project? You know, this, we started off talking about that as a as a theatre show. Yeah. But you put an album of the songs out. Yeah. Um, the response was, to the songs have been fantastic. Yeah. Right. I mean, especially in the UK, uh, some people called it like an unexpected masterpiece. Mm. Mm. Um, so there's a tremendous amount of enthusiasm for the songs. Yeah. Um, the play. Came out in sort of odd circumstances. The, the artistic director of the theater had just left right as I was starting rehearsals for the play. So we were a bit un, un, unlooked after in a sense. But it got some very good reviews. But I think it needs a little more work. It needs to be shortened. And so we'll see what. That's part of what I'm going to look at next year. Yeah, yeah. How to shorten it and see if there's some yeah. other people who could do it. It strikes me you sort of you sort of I guess approach so many of these things that are living documents. You know, like your songs are constantly evolving in your live performances of them. Yeah. And in the, in the, the stripped back duo setting, your song like Left of Center, which everyone knows, suddenly they hear a version of it where it's just bass guitar and your voice, which is completely, completely different to the recording. Yeah. And yet somehow the whole spirit of the recording is evoked in that performance. Yeah. You know. Well, I love doing that, and it, and so it changes depending on which yeah. musicians I'm yeah. playing with. I yeah. also have a duo show with Jerry. Yeah, the guitarist. So, yeah, the yeah. guitarist. And so, I don't know if you've seen any YouTubes of yeah. his version of yeah. Blood Makes Noise. It's quite yes. different. Yes. Um, so I kind of, I like that freedom to let the guys that I play with mm. express themselves. Mm. So the two constants, I guess, in it are your songs and your voice. Or, yes. Or, or more, more obviously you. <laughs> you know, yeah. you and what you bring to it. Yeah. But that makes Especially it, the voice. Yeah. Because no matter what setting the voice is in, it, you can... It, Everyone recognizes my voice. Mm. They know my name. They know my voice. They mm. don't don't always know what I look like. <laughs> I, I'm very invisible. You get mistaken I, for um, other famous people. Sometimes, yeah. Yeah. And that's fine. You know, <laughs> I I think that's fine. But when I start to sing, everyone's like, ah, that's the damn Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm conscious of that time because yeah. what have you got to do today? You're you're uh, leaving. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's <laughs> that's just a little thing. So I, yeah. I mean. 
no one normally agrees to do an interview at the end of a tour, so thank you so much for agreeing to, to speak to me. And, and you know, it's been a, a magical couple of weeks for me. I've seen you twice in two different cities doing two different shows. Very, very different shows. Two yeah. different lineups, and, yeah. and both were fantastic. Oh, good. I'm glad you liked them both. Yeah, yeah it's very different. I mean, the set with Mikey is sort of a more classic mm. return, return mm. to form. It's the way I toured for 10 years. It's yeah. just me and Mike. Yeah. Um, so he knows the material inside and out. Yeah. And then with the band, it was it was really a thrill mm. to go back to the old material and really kind of put it out there. Yeah. I, I don't feel tired of it. I feel like no. it's been reinvented, and especially with Yuval playing drums. Oh, that was the first uh, time we'd done a run with him. Oh, right. Yeah. Well, he was, I mean, yeah, everyone was great, but he was amazing, you know. Yeah. Uh, the uh, couple of the Solitude songs in particular just sounded, I guess, the title track and um, and what else was I thinking of? Um, Oh, I mean, Casper all, Hauser is yeah, the one abso- that I, absolutely. I yeah, feel yeah, a thrill yeah. kind yes. of feeling that. But even Ironbound as well, you know, like some of the more um, delicate stuff. Yeah. You know, it isn't just about the driving kind of percussive stuff. Some of the kind of little tinkling things, he has all of that down too. Amazing yeah. player. Yeah, very graceful. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, I always feel him sort of nudging me. Yeah. You know, it's always very alive. Yeah. He never just settles into the groove and it's yeah. never autoplay. Yeah, yeah. It's always kind of alive yeah. and interesting so uh, it's been a weird tour you know it's been sort of very um, sequential I started the tour with me and Jerry then we had the whole band now it's me and Mikey yeah and then you made up again. the whole band <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like we're going here we're going there so it's been a little crazy but uh, and then very get, satisfying then you get to go moonlight with an orchestra to, yes to, that's to right finish. yeah that's, that's the right. big diva finish <laughs> yes I get to wear my gowns and swan around for a minute yeah um, so that's fun too oh well thank you so much it's yeah it's been my pleasure thank you my footsteps are ticking like water dripping from a tree walking a hairline and stepping very carefully I out at the knees hearing muffled seeing blind soon it will hit the deep freeze ah.